This episode of EM Weekly has been archived. The ideas presented by the former host of EM Weekly may not reflect or represent the values of the Readiness Lab and the Doberman Emergency Management Group. Out of respect for the guests who contributed to this episode, it remains available online. EM Weekly starting right now, bringing emergency managers from around the world together to learn, share and collaborate. The difference between those who have a, a pre-9-11 perspective and a post-9-11 perspective seems to me that that was really a line of demarcation and that, that many people never uh, have never come around to understanding the seriousness, serious implications of terrorism in the world. Hi, and welcome to Ian Weekly, and this is your host, Todd DeVoe speaking, and this week, we are talking to Dr. Paula Gordon, who is one of the pioneers of emergency management education. Dr. Gordon is also one of the nation's leading researchers on the impact of EM and our ability to respond. Dr. Gordon has done some wonderful research into the ethics of public service as well. Did you know that you can build your own community of emergency managers? Uh, on forums.emweekly.com. It is easy. Just create a profile and at your fingertips and a click of a mouse, you can make your own group that you have complete control over. Check it out. Come on over to forums.emweekly.com. This week in Ask Todd, I was asked by Susan from South Dakota, what is a good way to engage the community as an emergency manager? Susan, that's a great question. And first of all, I think that as an emergency manager, one of our key principles in our job is to engage the community. And so we need to get out and, and, and do more to gain the trust of our, our residents. I like the idea of small community gatherings. And when I was the emergency manager at the city of Seal Beach in California, with the help of one of my volunteers, we developed a program called Neighbor for Neighbor. And this is a way for people to get out and meet each other uh, and collectively learn how to help each other right in your block, right in your neighborhood. So it's kind of like taking the principles of Neighborhood Watch, but expanding it to emergency management. You know, and this is just one of the ideas out there. So if you have any ideas on uh, how you can to engage your community, please go to uh, forums.emweekly.com and uh, let us know what you guys do to engage your community. Now let's talk to Dr. Gordon. Well, I'm really happy to have one of the manager's premier educators here now with me. It's Paul Gordon. Paul, welcome to Ian Weekly. How are you doing today? I'm fine, Todd. Thanks so much for the invitation. So, Paul, how did you get involved in emergency management? Well, I, as a child, I was uh, I experienced the uh, Tehachapi earthquake firsthand, and I think that probably uh, got me quite interested, if uh, not concerned, about natural hazards. I remember reading Thunderbolt House too uh, by Howard Gies. It was a fictional account of the San Francisco earthquake, and that was uh, I had a quite quite an impact on my psyche. I think. Later, I read Lucifer's Hammer. I don't know if you know that science fiction book. No. It's about what happened when a, an asteroid hit uh, Los Angeles. And that, that also, uh, one of the things that occurred was um, the uh, Central Valley became a lake. And uh, the same kind of scenario was worked out in that book. As I had some similarities to the um, blackout, National Geographic 
docudrama. Did you mm-hmm. see that? By any yeah. chance? I had some similarities there, and I was struck by those similarities when I saw the National Geographic's version of what would happen in a cataclysmic disaster, or in the case of National Geographic, it was just a, um, a widespread um, and long-lasting electric power grid failure. And I was deeply concerned about other kinds of disasters, too, as time went on, um, uh, from Nagasaki and Hiroshima, the Lifton book on that. And also, I was um, uh, interested in the Love Canal situation and the Exxon Mobis disaster and other contaminants involving, other uh, disasters involving contamination of the environment. So your education background is public administration. Um, right. How did you get involved in teaching in emergency management? Well, that came about after Katrina, and I had been uh, involved with teaching at the George Washington University and got involved with a project having to do with Y2K. And Y2K, I heard about in depth for the first time in 1998. And I heard about it at a faculty retreat in which Stuart Umpleby, a colleague, um, gave a presentation. He talked about the embedded systems problem. And that problem was very like other problems that I'd, the reaction to it by, by the people who were present was very similar to other problems that I had seen uh, with other kinds of disasters and, and indeed fiascos from Cerveza to Minamata and or people who should have known and under and Bhopal should have known and understood uh, the technical aspects of the, uh, the problem. Chernobyl even, but they didn't seem to, and they didn't prepare adequately for and take the necessary steps to protect against any potential type of disaster. I was struck by the fact that the people at the faculty retreat, many of whom were information and computer scientists, didn't understand the so-called embedded systems problem with regard to Y2K and what would happen with the failure of embedded systems, which would be date-sensitive digital, complex digital systems and SCADA systems, would be that they could trigger a failure and say an electric power grid, which in turn would could uh, uh, trigger other failures in the critical infrastructure. And because of that concern, I got deeply involved in trying to brief people, along with Stuart Humblebee, we briefed people in various places in the federal government and got to uh, establish communication with John Koskinen, who was head of the White House effort. And I tried to provide all the information I could to them concerning the embedded systems aspect of the problem. So I became very well versed in trying to educate people about these matters. And then after uh, after Katrina, happened, it occurred to me that it would be helpful to see if uh, Goodbye University would be interested in putting together a emergency management certificate program, which would be kind of an all-hazards approach and uh, deal with the implications and the lessons that should have been learned as a result of um, things like Y2K, but also uh, things like um, Hurricane uh, Katrina. Now, as far as programs go on the education side, and myself, just I, mean, I have my master's in public administration, so I think it's a really, just like for full disclosure, I think it's a great degree. Do you think that public administration programs should offer some sort of emergency management class or classes uh, for those that are going into the PA 
uh, track. I certainly think it would be good to offer it. I don't know that it needs to be required, but I think that people in public administration tend to have a public service orientation that is lacking in other specialty areas. And for that reason alone, it's a, a very good fit for emergency managers. I think it's a nice place to place emergency management within a curriculum as well. Because I think one of the struggles that we're having on the education side is with emergency management, where does it belong? Uh, and I know for the longest time, it's, it's been in the sociology arena, uh, and it's kind of broken out, kind of like how criminal justice did, say, about 30 years ago, where it broke out of the sociology side of it in its own discipline now. And you see the, the new emerging emergency management programs in, in various different colleges, and you're starting to see a couple of PhD programs in, in emergency management. Uh, what do you think of those trends right now? Well, you know, I really haven't focused that much on them. I think that what I've been trying to do is to uh, uh, train teachers, train trainers, in effect. So I've been focusing primarily on making the certificate program on that encompasses all hazards and particularly deals with the implications after 9-11. I try to focus on all of the um, things like critical infrastructure and planning preparedness and unmet needs. So it's sort of a course on writing for writers or educating uh, emergency managers uh, who are already or people who are either uh, teaching or who are practitioners and trying to help them expand their horizons to see and understand certain aspects of uh, emergency management and homeland security that they may have missed. One, for instance, is there is a cultural gap between, that you probably know full well, between emergency management and homeland security. And that needs to be bridged. It, it certainly was very much in evidence in the way in which Hurricane Katrina played out. Right. The uh, fact that uh, the Department of Homeland Security had been set up that year earlier meant that there was a, an additional layer of bureaucracy between FEMA and White House, and that really interfered with the ability of the head of FEMA to deal with a major disaster in the way that he had in the past, and it slowed down the response immensely, and it took several days for the Department of Defense to come forward and to, for General Henri to appear on the scene, and to, who really was able to do a great, great deal to um, pull things together and uh, do a very adequate and, and amazing job, I thought, in dealing with Katrina. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, he did a great job, and, and I think that's one of those things where we're able to uh, have a somewhat successful uh, response in getting to the recovery of Katrina, basically because General Henry was able to uh, to pull things together there at the, at the last minute. We had a political breakdown, and we had societal breakdown, and then we had obviously communication breakdown between layers of government. And I think that's a really good case study on, on how we need to do things better going forward. And I think that begs the question then uh, about the professional emergency manager and the fact that with FEMA, we did not have somebody who was a professional emergency manager in charge of FEMA. And then you're, you saw a lot of cities and, and townships that, that their, their emergency managers are, are collateral duty or part-time maybe at, at best. And this trend that we have going forward, do you see the trend of professionalizing I don't know what I mean by that is having people who are in the field of emergency management or in the, as a practitioner having to have some sort of background and education in emergency management, or do you still, do you still see it as, in some cases, collateral duty, uh, police officer, firefighter, paramedic can do? 
I think either way, they need to have the kinds of courses that I try to provide, and many of the students in the courses are indeed uh, mid-career. I think it helps to have a practical experience, uh, whether it be as uh, an adjunct to one's um, public safety duties or uh, whether it be through uh, an emergency management department. It, either way, I think it's important that you have on-the-ground experience with disasters and that you have an orientation that involves public service. And that's one of the, the distinct differences that, that occurred when the uh, Department of Homeland Security was set up and the office before that of Homeland Security is that most many of the people that were involved uh, at the outset had no background in, in emergency management management, no right. on-the-ground experience. And as a consequence, Michael Brown had superior experience to Michael Chertoff. And uh, when you have someone who has more experience dealing with hurricanes, having to go through an intermediary uh, who has less experience than you do and who else blindsides you, uh, that can be very difficult, or at least what he was accused by, by Brown of, of blindsiding him. I don't know if you heard uh, Brown's presentation uh, that he gave uh, in early 2006 at a it's on it's on C-SPAN, and I show this to my students along with General Honoré's presentation early on in 2006. And if you also read depositions, you'll understand far more. The other thing I encourage students to read um, is a set of marvelous journalistic accounts of the years leading up to Katrina and what was going on behind the scenes. It's a, a series that um, the Washington Post ran, just two, two, uh, two articles, and they're by uh, Susan Glasser and Michael Grunewald in December, December 22nd, 23rd of uh, 2005. These are must-reads. I think they're some of the best journalistic accounts of what goes on in government and bureaucratic machinations and, and uh, how, for instance, many people that didn't know that the Hurricane Pam exercise, which was done in the early summer of 2005 prior to Katrina, Brown was fighting to get resources to implement the recommendations that came out of that, and he couldn't get the resources. And the resources, uh, vast um, resources had been taken from FEMA when uh, Dep the Department of Homeland Security was set up. And he had a very difficult time in, in trying to get have FEMA operate in the way that it should and that he knew it should. That's another thing that comes to mind is that the cyclic nature of the of emergency management is really not well understood by those uh, who are outside of the field. Um, the need for preparedness and mitigation and response and recovery and mitigation embedded also in recovery efforts, all of that uh, are well known to uh, those in emergency management. They're not well known to people who have a, a very different educational and experiential and professional background. They're, they're there is a wide gulf that needs to be bridged, and that uh, there was an incident at uh, uh, Emmitsburg that uh, was sort of a major epiphany, epiphany to me about uh, this, where there was a presentation at uh, the, the uh, national, the the um, higher ed symposium, oh maybe ten years ago, in which there were people from the fire 
um, fire safety and public safety in the room, along with people from military and also on the emergency management field with deep experience in that field. And it occurred to me that there, there was not only that there was this, this gulf um, that was really separated them in their understanding and their perspective uh, concerning Homeland Security and emergency management and the juxtaposition of those two. And it occurred to me that if you put on a grid, on one side of the grid, public safety, and on the other side, national security, that the ideal is to maximize both of those a concern for both of those and a respect for both of those. And that is really has been lacking, I think, in an understanding. But, you know, when you have when you have people coming at these fields with very, very different educational backgrounds, professional backgrounds, some of whom have had on ground experience and who have very much a, a extraordinary amount of uh, public service kind of uh, orientation and then you put that together with people who uh, don't necessarily share that same background. Uh, maybe they come from DOD and or uh, justice or uh, some other realms. Uh, it can be hard to bring everyone around to an understanding, common understanding of the mission and the goals that need to be served in protecting the country from all forms of and in all instances of um, national disasters. What are some of the challenges that you have with getting the message out for education for emergency managers? The answer to that question and more when we return from our break. Emergencies happen, whether they're related to medical emergencies, threats of physical violence, weather related or other. One of the most difficult things during an emergency is to find help and quickly and efficiently communicate with all parties, regardless of whether you're an administrator, law enforcement or the end user. With Titan HST, we help distort time by creating high-tech yet simple-to-use mobile-based applications that connect you with the people who can help you. At Titan HST, we believe in the power of people. The modern emergency manager wears lots of hats. So how do you also fit in the needs of your exercise program? It's just a matter of time. And how much is your time worth? A lot. TTX Vault is the answer to getting some of that time back. Pre-assembled tabletops, drills, and functional exercises are what they offer. Spanning NIMS, hospitals and healthcare, special operations, and more. Exercises come from the archives of the Blue Cell. Get a jump start on your exercise program today and visit TTX Vault at www.ttxvault.com. Welcome back from that break, and thank you so much for listening to our sponsors. Without them, we couldn't really bring you uh, what we have. So check them out and let them know that you came from EM Weekly. Let's continue the interview. What are some of the challenges that you have with getting the message out for education for emergency managers? Well, um, one of them these days, aside from this culture gap and trying to help people understand that, is the difference between those who have a a pre-9-11 perspective and a post-9-11 perspective. It seems to me that that was really a line of demarcation and that, that many people never uh, have never come around to understanding the seriousness, serious implications of terrorism in the world and how this um, really changes the ball game in very, very major ways. And so I've written about that. I make given presentations about that. Part of a, a white paper that I had done 
on uh, critical infrastructure protection and improving critical infrastructure protection has a, a portion in it on understanding the scope and nature of the terrorist threat. And it seems that there's a very good metaphor for this. Um, seems that there it can be likened to, the terrorists can be likened to a mad dog in the schoolyard. And responsibility has to be taken to deal with, with the, the, these mad dogs. Um, there are also major consequences for the fabric of society and when you have increasing numbers of terrorist incidents, uh, including uh, the, the uh, shooter shooter incidents, um, uh, which are, are very unsettling to the fabric of society and, and can cause its <laughs> unraveling and to create a, a kind of a very unhealthy uh, cultural atmosphere that um, people have difficulty in dealing with. And the school situation is another, the school shooters. Uh, one of the things people are not realizing however, about all these acts of violence, whether they be uh, um, more domestic than, than uh, externally uh, inspired by foreign terrorists, uh, is that even the uh, Chernoff brothers uh, were also involved in drug use. Mm. And if you look at all of the incidents and you look at the toxicity reports on, on all of the, most all of the shooting incidents in schools and in theaters and, and malls and at the Boston Marathon, you'll find there is a um, relationship between uh, that these individuals who are responsible uh, most often had discernible amounts of uh, psychoactive drugs in their system. And I don't think that, you know, the, the criminal justice system needs to be alert to this and to um, be sure that toxicity studies are done on all people who are involved and that they're, uh, the link between mental problems, mental illness and psychotic episodes and, and acting out in violence uh, is noted in, in a more thorough way than it has been in the past. I, I read a paper, uh, but I forget who the author is, and it talked about the correlation between the increase in active shooters and the increase in uh, Ritalin prescriptions. And I don't know if that's true or not, but uh, I can... Yes, well, any psychoactive drug will do that. And I've um, one of the most prolific... Um, uh, writers uh, on that topic, who is a, a, a neuroscientist, is Christine Miller, and I have uh, referenced her work on uh, a one of my websites. I have several websites on, on I've had them for many years now. One of them uh, goes has all my archive material and Y2K on it. In fact, and that's uh, Gordon Drug Abuse uh, GordonHomeland.com. But the um, website on Gordon drugabuseprevention.com has uh, many references that um, connect uh, violence and psychoactive drugs. And also you can, I think the shooter in the Parkland uh, uh, situation, school situation, he, as far as I know, toxicity studies were not at least publicized, but we do know or there is talk that his mother had been had alcohol problems and that he may have been born with fetal alcohol syndrome, which also would be a, a predictor of um, unstable psychological behavior hmm. as an adult. 
Yeah. So these things, for some reason, are not being paid adequate attention to, and I think it uh, behooves us to to do so. In, in fact, the I'm, one of the courses that I'm, I'm I'll be teaching beginning on July 16th is a four-week course that's part of the Emergency Management Certificate Program at Auburn University Outreach, and it is on drug addiction, uh, drug use, and uh, the opioid epidemic. And it uh, tries to highlight uh, the various ways in which the drug epidemic is under undermining the social fabric. And if you look at all the states in which marijuana has been legalized, for instance, for recreational use particularly, that in those states, you have higher crime rates, you have uh, higher incidence of uh, traffic fatalities, you have higher incidents of, of students uh, in schools dropping out and also of uh, using in school-age children using drugs. You have higher incidence of a homeless. Uh, if you go to all of the different metro, major metropolitan areas in those states from uh, Los Angeles, San Diego, San Francisco, Seattle, Portland, and uh, of course Denver, Pueblo, Colorado Springs, if you go to all these places, you'll find that uh, the caliber of life has uh, is, is, has been extremely downgraded. And there is a series of videos that I use. I'd like to use a lot of media in my teaching. And um, there's a series of videos known as the Code Red Pueblo series of videos. And they're all available on YouTube. And a group of uh, several hundred doctors in Colorado got together and they uh, have made given presentations and their perspective on what's going on there as a result of marijuana legalization. And there are major horror stories. The emergency rooms are being over overcrowded. Uh, the uh, numbers of websites, uh, the number of uh, suicides have uh, skyrocketed. Uh, and if your toxicity studies have done on suicides show that in the majority of suicides, you have a presence of uh, of THC, marijuana, a marijuana's active principle in, in the, and the reason why we, we have been misled all these years into thinking that marijuana was, was rather innocuous is that, uh, never before have the uh, levels of THC been as high as they have been, uh, since the legalization of marijuana. And there's no regulation in Colorado as to how much THC you can have uh, in anything that would be sold in a dispensary. And so you can get uh, 15% THC, 30%, 99% in, in the oil versions that are distillates. Uh, it's quite uh, quite something. And these are very high-level hallucinogens. They're, they're not low-level hallucinogens if you compare it with um, the kind of uh, marijuana that was available, say, way back in the 60s and just had a very small percent THC in it. But even then, uh, THC was shown in the 60s to have idiosyncratic psychotomimetic effects in normal normal human subjects. That's research by Harris Isbell and Associates. And uh, that should have been the end of marijuana, but it wasn't. And few people know about it even today, but there's a voluminous literature about connecting uh, the marijuana use to violence now and to psychosis and and to um, schizophrenia and suicidal depression. In fact, I wouldn't be at all surprised if the rise in suicides uh, today is, it has to do in 
some measure to the increase in the use of marijuana. What happens when you stop using marijuana is that you can get extremely depressed and you can also develop a syndrome called uh, squamidine, which is a, a combination of uh, vomiting and screaming, of all things. And this has been noted by, yeah, this has been noted by ER doctors all over the country where marijuana has been legalized. And it's, there, there are scientific papers about it now, too. And there have been articles in, in the uh, New York Times recently about it. And the, uh, the terrible thing is that when somebody appears and for treatment, uh, they will not be, they will not listen to the ER doctor when the doctor says, you know, this is related to your use of marijuana. You have to stop using marijuana. They just uh, are in denial and uh, it costs tens of thousands of dollars to do a total medical workup on them. And uh, this is a syndrome that can can result in major uh, kidney failure and other severe systemic problems. for your general health. So, uh, so for all these reasons, I, I consider that we are indeed in a public health disaster. And I, I was pleased to see that when Clara Rubin in her Recovery Diva blog uh, noted uh, within the last couple of years uh, had several pieces on the connection between um, the, or the, the public health disaster nature of the drug epidemic and that we needed to look at it in terms of, um, no, and another in terms of emergency management, another reason we need to do that is that the people who are um, uh, first responders have to know how to deal with people who are ODing and who are, and or who are violent. And also they have to know uh, not to use these drugs themselves and not be sort of sucked into the popular trend of, of using these uh, um, milder and, and uh, not so mild and very high powered, sometimes hallucinogens, high powered THC. Uh, marijuana uh, that uh, will be very deleterious to them and to their ability to be of service in the disaster. The other thing I might mention is that those who have used these drugs can have flashbacks, can have uh, recurring problems even after they stop using them. It can take months, if not longer, for them to, for those effects to wear off. It seems that the metabolites that are involved uh, with the use of marijuana can uh, be stored in the fatty tissues of the body and uh, reactivated at later times, and especially in times of duress. And, you know, I know of numerous incidents where that has happened where someone hasn't used marijuana for a long time, but uh, they will have a, be in a, a very stressful situation and will have a kind of, in effect, a psychotic break uh, or going through an hallucinatory pattern or whatever. So uh, all of this bodes very ill for the future of any society or any jurisdiction that, that um, uh, legalizes these drugs. Uh, right. And the black market is invited in and they undercut the, the amount of uh, the cost of that um, legal marijuana, so-called legal marijuana or medical marijuana also are being sold at. And they can undercut that easily. And they can also undercut the cost of black market marijuana with lower cost heroin. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is a reason uh, from my understanding of the accounts that I've read and the reports from the uh, various uh, states where marijuana has been legalized or medical marijuana has been legalized, that these are things that 
that need to be understood and taken into account. So this, this uh, begs the question. Now, I spoke to Eric Holderman about last year around here, and we, uh-huh. talked, we, we talked regarding the, the idea of using the emergency manager and the homes crisis that we have. And, and I, I live in uh, Orange County, California, and, and uh, we have Los Angeles just a little bit north to us, obviously, uh, that both have some severe homeless issues going on right now. And so we talked about that. And then and I know that you kind of mentioned the this the medical bear or the use of marijuana um, as a public health disaster. Do you think that the use of the emergency manager um, in both of these cases is a good idea? Uh, do you see it as mission creep, or do you see it as really in the realm of what we do? I think it's going to be increasingly in the realm of what what emergency management does because uh, what you have in in effect in Pueblo, Colorado, for instance, if you listen to Karen Randall, Dr. Karen Randall's um, Code Red uh, video, if you listen to her, watch her presentation, you'll see that what you have is a refugee camp type situation where... um, Illnesses are rampant, and uh, it's uh, you know it's it's like after uh, the earthquake in in Haiti, uh, you know, it's, uh, and what is going on also in in um, Puerto Rico. I'm sure that there's um, a greater use of uh, drugs now in court in Puerto Rico than there was um, prior to the hurricanes and all the death and devastation that they've experienced. Uh, these things have to be uh, understood in context. I, I once, um, I think it was in the early 90s, the uh, SAMHSA, which has to do with the mental health and substance abuse and mental health administration, oversaw a grant for, um, through, through PIRE, the Pacific Institute for Research and Evaluation, that it was involved with, and this this grant had to do with uh, the use of drugs in the aftermath, substance abuse in the aftermath of uh, major federal ex- declared disasters. And I think that you know it it really is something that needs to receive a great deal of attention, and more more so than it has in the past, uh, because people can be in such a state of despair and that they can easily turn to uh, drugs that um, well sort of change their their mood and and their mindset at least temporarily without realizing Mm -hmm. even a drug like marijuana one in six youth become addicted and one in ten adults and probably more than that these days with the higher levels of thc in it which is highly addictive and also (laughs) has problems and creates problems for reproduction in both in males and females and uh, you know the fact that marijuana has been medical marijuana has been uh, touted for use by pregnant women for morning sickness is uh, just criminal it should never have been done Mm. and uh, it causes low birth weight shorter gestation periods and uh, there are increasing statistics showing an association between a variety of different birth anomalies and we know for a fact by looking at the brains of aborted and miscarried fetuses that had been exposed to marijuana and utero that there are brain differences and these brain differences correlate in fact to a sensitization to opioid use and of all things and the animal studies that have uh, been done in parallel and the animals have been allowed to grow up after being exposed in utero 
the and those animals have shown a predilection to choose um, a tendency to choose opioids uh, when given an opportunity mm. in experimental studies. One of the the place that I found out about that originally, and I've checked it now with uh, Nora Voco, uh, who heads the National Institute of Mental Health, and Bertha Madras, uh, who's one of the most uh, outstanding authorities. In my, uh, to my understanding in, in, in the field, uh, and also uh, Bob Dupont, a former drug czar, these are connections that a few people are seeing and know about. And uh, Libby Struke, who was one of the, um, is a psychiatrist who was one of the presenters in the Code Red series, uh, pointed this out, uh, pointed these, some of these connections out. And I was, um, I've been in touch with her as well. And uh, all of this has been written up in, in, a, in a letter that I wrote for members of the Canadian Parliament. Mm. And that's on my Gordon Drug Abuse Prevention website. And I tried to point out there the connection that you can see in the research. And uh, if you also look at all the people who OD as a result of opioids, ostensibly, you'll find that... Uh, a, a vast majority of them have had a 10 to 15 year history of marijuana use. So it it all fits together, but the problem is that policymakers are not seeing the connections. And I'm afraid that more states may legalize marijuana, and certainly we just had that uh, Canada legalized marijuana, even though many of us were doing all that we could to try to speak to them, everyone from Justin Trudeau to uh, others in the parliament, and warn them of, and tell them about the experience that jurisdictions were having as a result of this. So, uh, along with other public health problems, uh, for instance, the Zika virus and uh, Ebola, all of these, I think, uh, can be seen as having some uh, being of concern or having some relevance to emergency management, especially when, if they get to a point where they get out of hand. Right. Pandemic flu, for instance, is another one where you run into the problem of uh, talking about quarantines and laying yeah. in stockpiles of uh, yeah. supplies. So we're coming dear to the to the end of the of the show, and I just wanted to give you an opportunity to if somebody want to get a hold of you. How could they find you? Best places uh, to find me are on my website. They're not blogs, by the way, but, but uh, my website have all my contact information along with my phone number: uh, gordonhomeland.com and gordondrugabusprevention.com. Also, gordonpublicadministration.com, uh, which has a very um, pertinent article matrix analysis in which I analyze all the different ways in which the problem of uh, Katrina uh, was defined by all the key stakeholders and uh, do that using something called matrix analysis. And my email address is pgordon, P-G-O-R-D-O-N, at starpower.net. And we'll make sure that all that information is down in the show notes as well, everybody. So if you're driving down the road and you don't have a pencil in your hand, don't worry about, uh, you know, distracted driving. We got that information in the show notes for you. So when you get back home, go ahead and click on that information. So, um, Dr. Gordon, is there anything else that you'd like to say to the emergency manager before we let you go? Yes, I think one of the greatest um, epiphanies I've had over the years with regard to emergency management is the need for what Mary Parker Follett called the 
invisible leader. Have you heard of run across that concept in public administration studies yet? Mm-hmm. Invisible leader? Yes, ma'am. An example of it uh, is well typified in um, or exemplified in the Manhattan Project and a book called uh, Organizing Genius by Biederman and uh, Bennis. And it, what it has to do with is a common sense of mission and a common sense of purpose. And this, I find, is really typifies people who are in emergency management. And that, that common sense of purpose and mission have to do with serving the public and, and serving the public good and looking out for the welfare of others. And that is really where I think there needs to be a, a lot of emphasis uh, in any course that one would take on emergency management in, in academia. Uh, one um, article that I've written on this, which is on my website, um, gordonhomeland.com, is called Transforming and Leading Organizations. And it includes all kinds of references to uh, crisis management that would be helpful to people who want to understand how a crisis manager and why a crisis manager is as effective at how they can be as effective as can be. And one of the books there that I note is Leadership by Rudy Giuliani, which talks about his uh, ability to network and the way in which he had uh, his consummate networking skills had put him in very good stead when 9-11 happened. Mm. Had it not been for that, and this is what also separates the those in emergency management from my vantage point, and from many of those who who entered um, homeland security without the benefit of having any background in home, in emergency management, is that they tend to to understand the importance of networking and of being interested in others and working with others in a collaborative way and to being of help and service to others on in a hands-on way. Mm. These are things I think that need to be stressed in our in the emergency management field and uh, in the all hazards approach to emergency management and homeland security. Well, Dr. Gordon, thank you so much for your time today, and uh, I really do appreciate a lot of the insight that we went over today, and uh, love to have you on again sometime. Well, thank you for the opportunity. I very much appreciated it. Bye bye now. 